since this says low battery. Matthew uh, 28, verse 18, and you should find it on page 1001 if you're using one of the church Bibles. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission. Um, When do you usually hear these verses preached on? In my experience, two occasions. The valedictory service for a missionary on one hand, or the baptism of a believer on the other. And both occasions may create in some of us a certain nervousness that it should be preached at the valedictory sending out service for a missionary may make us a little nervous that the finger is going to point to us and tell us to go. And if it's preached at a baptismal service, emphasizing that you make disciples before you baptize them, we'll come to that on another occasion, it may make those of you who are pedobaptists a little nervous that the preacher is engaging in polemic. As far as I know, this is not a valedictory service for any missionary, although we are both hailing and farewelling friends from Malawi and also from China, uh, receiving them on the same night as we send them out into the cold of a Scottish winter. And as far as I know, there is to be no baptism at the end of the service. So why think about the Great Commission when we're not sending out missionaries or baptizing Answer, because the Great Commission is much bigger than either of those two occasions. And that's why I want us to try and spend the, uh, the next three Sunday evenings, including this one, thinking about these very famous words that in many ways we take for granted. I remember when I was a little boy, if anyone gave me a peppermint in the days when people had peppermints, I would have crunched my peppermint within probably 30 to 40 seconds. My grandmother, on the other hand, would still be savoring that peppermint 40 minutes later. And in my general observation, people read the Bible the same way. You can crunch the numbers on the Bible, just bang your way through it. But as we grow as Christians, we ought to be able to learn to suck the texts of Scripture. 
Uh, if this doesn't sound too bizarre, we need to learn not so much to be Bible crunchers as, yes, Bible suckers. And I want us to suck uh, the juices, the flavor of these words that we usually describe as the Great Commission, and to, to try and bring out the answer to this question, well, what is so great about it? Not just does it, does it make me feel I'm not doing enough? Does it make me feel guilty that I'm not going? Does it confuse me about the issue of baptism? No, it's here, and it's been called the Great Commission in order to give us a sense of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And like all Gaul, those of you who had to endure Caesar's De Bello Gallico when you were a child at school, the Great Commission is divided into three parts. And it's actually quite important to notice that. It begins with a, a kind of preamble, and then it goes on to a command, and then it provides a promise. And shrewd Bible students have noticed that these are actually often the three parts to covenants in biblical days. There is the provision of a land, there is a command to express authority in that land, and there is a promise of blessing that will attend to those who are obedient to that command. And in a very real sense, as I think we may notice this evening, the Great Commission is the, the, the new covenant Lord expressing the realities of this new covenant order that He has brought into being through His death and His resurrection. And the words really are great. And I want us this evening to notice the first part of these three parts in Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You'll notice that the therefore in the second part of this verse points us back to this statement, although it's the statement that we are most likely to gloss over. Let's get to the real meat. The real meat is that we have to go and make disciples. And therefore, it's very important for us that we, that we hold the reins on ourselves before we rush on, and we listen very carefully to what the Lord Jesus is saying. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The principle is this that what we as the church, we as those who seek to do everything the apostles taught us, the Lord Jesus called the church to obey, we who are engaged in this great enterprise, we need to understand that the first part of the Great Commission is not about what we are to do. The first part of the Great Commission is about what has been, now notice the verb, what has been given to the Lord Jesus. And I want to underline that to you. 
so that we, that we don't mistake Jesus as saying, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So, here he is saying something surely very significant. Something has happened to enable Jesus to say, I have now received something. Something has been given to me. He's not simply saying, I'm God, and therefore all authority in heaven and earth is mine. No, he's speaking here as the incarnate Son, as the Word who was made flesh, as Emmanuel, God with us. And he is saying to the apostles, something has happened so that, as a result, all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to me. Something is true for Jesus that was not true before. And I want us to try and explore the significance of that. And to notice, first of all, that these words do not exist in isolation. They are actually the climax of the whole of Matthew's gospel. And in a sense, they bookend the way in which he had introduced Jesus in the opening four chapters. They reflect on what Jesus came into the world to do and what he has accomplished. And I think once you see that, it's fairly obvious. For example, with what does the Gospel of Matthew begin? The Gospel of Matthew begins with Abraham. John's Gospel begins with eternity. Mark's Gospel begins with John the Baptist. Luke's Gospel begins with Elizabeth and Zechariah. Matthew's Gospel begins with Abraham. Why does it begin with Abraham? because the promise that was given to Abraham that has now been fulfilled in Christ is that in his seed, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And so, what was hinted at in the opening words of Matthew's gospel is now, as it were, coming to its climax in the Great Commission. This is the point at which the promise given to Abraham about his seed is now being fulfilled with the dissemination of the gospel to the whole world. And of course, that was a revolutionary reality. It must have been a revolutionary reality to, to, to Matthew, the, the Jew. Because in the old covenant, there was no message to go. The Old Covenant's message was, you are to be the light of the world, and the nations will stream to Jerusalem. But now the promise that was given to Abraham, it's now coming to its consummation. And now they are to go, because the seed of Abraham, in whom all the nations of the earth would find blessing, has come. And you remember also how Matthew's gospel begins. It begins with the naming of Jesus. 
He is to be called Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. And what does Jesus say here in the Great Commission? He says, Emmanuel is with you to the end of the age. I am, using the, alluding at least to the divine name revealed to Moses, I am, Emmanuel, God is with you, and he is with you to the end of the age. And so, in a marvelous way, now Jesus is saying, you will see the fulfillment of the way in which I was named the Savior, who is himself, Emmanuel. And then you remember how the book of Matthew begins. We could, we could kind of play on the words with which it begins. Um, it alludes to the opening book of the Bible. It is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Just as the first book of the Bible is the, the book of the Genesis of all things. Now, the very language that Matthew uses is, is hinting to us, uh, hinting to people who were familiar with Scripture, that this is a new beginning, that this is a new creation that has begun, that this is a new order of reality. Remember how Paul picks up on that in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, when, when you are in Christ, it's like walking into a new creation. And so there's a, there's a line from the beginning of Matthew's gospel that is to be traced through to the end of Matthew's gospel. And then Matthew's story of Jesus' ministry begins with his calling of the apostles, and now it ends with his sending of the apostles. And when you stand back from Matthew's gospel, as many Christians have done and tried to find a way of describing Matthew's gospel, it's often well been described as what? A discipleship manual. Uniquely, Matthew's gospel has these five big chunks of seminar teaching that Jesus gave. And so what is he now commanding his apostles to do? He's commanding his apostles to, to teach converts everything he has taught them. And that's how they will, as he says here, make disciples. It's almost as though all those little fragments that float around in the early chapters of Matthew's gospel are now, it's, now, it's almost as though they are now as if by a magnet being drawn together to tell us this is, this is not just a casual statement that's being made, nor is this a statement that is separated or separable from everything you've been reading in this gospel. What is taking place here is where this gospel, where this story has been going all along. I think I've maybe mentioned before the famous principle of Aristotle, that the, the thing you have in view as the end must be the first thing that you have in view when you plan for that end. And you can see that here, can't you? Uh, 
It's only when you, it's only when you get to the end that, that some of those little fragments that Matthew has thrown out in his early description of Jesus and his ministry, they all, they all begin to, to fit into place, don't they? It's like a, it's like a picture where you, where you see different bits, like a jigsaw puzzle, and then, you know, something happens and, and you see the whole. So these verses, in a wonderful way, are the climax of Matthew's whole story. But when we step back as we ought to, what is so great about the Great Commission in this context is that these first words of Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. They're not just the climax of Matthew's whole story. They are actually the climax of the Bible's whole story. Now, maybe the best way for me to try and help you get a flavor of that is if I retranslate Jesus' words. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you will, you will immediately make the connection. All dominion in heaven and earth has been given to me. All dominion in heaven and earth has been given to me. So, what's that an echo of? It's an echo of the creation of man and woman in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Made as God's image. Made to serve God. Made to reflect the glory of God. So much so that when Paul says men sinned, he doesn't just say they broke the law of God, but that they fell short of the glory of God. And how are they to express that glory? Well, I think we've maybe seen before in, in our studies that when God makes man, it, it looks from Genesis 2 as though he, he kind of puts them together from the dust of the earth outside of the garden. Don't you ever notice that in Genesis 2? That he makes man and then he, he puts man in the garden. Think of it this way. Here is a, um, here's a child that uh, makes a little model. And then he picks the model up and he, he puts the model in place. And, and that's the picture. It's, it's an amazing picture. And it reminds us, as I think we've also often seen, that while the whole creation was good, not the whole of creation was garden. That's a hugely important thing to grasp. There was a difference between the garden of Eden that God made and the rest of the earth. There was an inside and an outside to that garden. And the command that God gave to Adam was that he was, to, he was to garden the garden. He was to fill the earth with garden. I mean, it's such an obvious picture of, of a father and a son, or a father and a daughter for that matter, uh, saying, saying to the child, let me give you a start. And once I've given you a start, then then you can go on and finish it. And it creates a bond, doesn't it, between 
between the Father and the Son. And that's the picture in Genesis 1 and 2. And into chapter 3, God is their heavenly Father. He provides everything for them. Um, and and he, he, he gives them this amazing privilege of having a kind of very unique fellowship with him, that just as he is the Lord of the whole universe and has made it for his glory, so he, he's saying to them, I have created all this for you, but I've not finished it all. So I want you to put the finishing touches to it. And then we can talk about it. As we walk together in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis 2, we'll have, we'll have something to talk about. God is so infinitely great, so majestic. What have, what have we, creatures of a day, made of the dust of the earth, what, what possible connection do we have with him? But he wants us to have this connection with him as he makes man and woman in the beginning. And, and so he says, I, I, I want you to be my, I want you to have a miniature experience of creativity. And so I'm going to give you dominion over the whole earth. And I want you to express that lordship over the whole earth by taking this garden in which everything is growing, everything is beautiful, the trees are bearing fruit, they look delicious, the trees themselves are beautiful. Now he's saying to Adam, go, I don't know how long this was planned to take, but go and fill the whole earth in this way. And uh, to use a colloquial expression, the problem is Adam lost it. That's the problem. And humanity's been living with the consequences ever since in all the dysfunction and confusion and shame, godlessness of the world order. And we're lost. And it's not just that we are lost in our guilt, we are lost in our destiny. We have fallen short of the glory for which we were created. We have lost the privileges that we were created for. And this is the story of the whole Bible, how God is going to bring it about that what Adam failed to do, Jesus will do. And the guilt that Adam incurred because of his sin. Jesus will undo. And the dominion that Adam lost in the fall, Jesus will have restored to him. Of course, he is the eternal God who reigns and rules over all things. But that doesn't provide salvation for us. That doesn't provide restoration for us. Our only hope of restoration is that someone comes and undoes what Adam did and does what Adam failed to do. And now that Jesus has done all that, he says, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And if you read through the Old Testament scriptures, you'll 
you'll realize that that's a note that is struck. Whenever the Old Testament looks forward to the, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, the seed of Abraham, the prophet like Moses, the suffering servant, the son of David, the son of man, when you, when you read about these figures who appear in a very mysterious way, sometimes almost out of nowhere in the Old Testament Scriptures, one of the things they all have in common is that through this figure there will come restoration. And often that restoration is the restoration seen in terms of, of the earth. It's seen in terms of recovering dominion over the earth. What's the great hope that the, that, that the son of David, the great promised King Messiah, what will be true of his day? Well, we often sing about it, don't we, in Psalm 72? His name forever shall endure. Last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him, and blessed all nations shall him call. His kingdom will stretch, as Isaac Watts says, from shore to shore. And it's this marvelous picture of how Jesus will come as the, as the true son of Adam, as the true seed of the woman, as the true prophet of God, as the true son of man, as the true suffering servant, as the true Davidic king. And he will do everything that is needed to bring about this marvelous new restoration that will, as I say, make it possible later for Paul to say, when you become a Christian, it's like setting foot into a new creation altogether, a new world order. And when you read through Paul's letters, this is something worth looking for to see how often Paul emphasizes that what Jesus did through his death and resurrection was he so undid what Adam had done and did what Adam had failed to do that in a sense as a reward for that, his Father has given not only him but us back everything that Adam lost. And we're helped to see this, I think, if when we read through the Gospels, when we read about the kingdom of God, which isn't a place, when you read through the Gospels, try, try retranslating that word kingdom as dominion, and you'll get the picture. And this is why, interestingly, in Matthew's Gospel, you know that the order of the temptations in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4 are slightly different because these two gospel writers want to focus on, on, on different emphases in the way they tell the story. But the climactic temptation in Matthew's gospel is what? It's Satan saying to Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world and uh, all you need to do is bow down before me. And I think unless you, unless you grasp this point, that Jesus has come into the world to establish the kingdom of God, that is the dominion of God, and he's going to do it in our humanity, 
by suffering for our sins and by breaking the power of death and Satan in the resurrection. When Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world, me, I just say, ho-hum. That doesn't even grab me. Why should that be a temptation to Jesus? Why should that be a real temptation to Jesus? Why would Jesus even feel that was a temptation? Because that's what he had come into the world to do. He'd come into the world to regain dominion, the dominion that Adam had forfeited. It was the purpose of his ministry. And so this is a very real temptation. You can have exactly what God has sent you into the world to get. And in an almost infinitely easier way. All you need to do is bow down. That was, that was the, you know, if, if you have some sense in your life, there is one thing for which you live. If somebody offers that to you, that pulls on all the affections of your soul to have what you have lived to gain. That's why it was such a temptation. But he understood, of course, that the only way in which that would truly happen, that Satan, as he always is, is a liar from the beginning and the father of lies. He knew that as soon as he bowed down to Satan, he would have lost the dominion that Satan had momentarily restored to him, and he would be in the same position as the first Adam, ejected from the garden of God. And so he's obedient. You notice what happens when he is obedient? What is it that he then begins to preach? Listen, the dominion of God has come. You see, he has begun to crush the head of the serpent, the promise of Genesis 3.15. And he's begun to restore the dominion of God. Now, how is that demonstrated in the Gospels? It's demonstrated, the most vivid way in which it's demonstrated is in Legion, isn't it? There are apparently 8,000 soldiers in the legion. How many, how many demons does it take to drive one man out of his mind? One, two, maybe five? Certainly doesn't take thousands. Why are there thousands of legions, of thousands of soldiers, demons, in this man's soul? A very simple answer, because Jesus is there. Why all these demonic resources in one location, in one man, because you got to defend your weakest point against your strongest enemy. And Jesus has already defeated the evil one. And now he's beginning, as it were, to garden the earth again. And he's beginning with people like the Gadarene demoniac, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, eh, blind Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus up the sycamore tree, the Syrophoenician woman, the widow of Nain who's lost her son. Everywhere that sin and Satan and death have exercised their dominion, Jesus begins to bring the restoration of the new dominion. And uh, you remember when he teaches the disciples in, in Matthew 5 to 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, what's it all about? It's about what life looks like when the dominion of God enters your life, isn't it? 
the Beatitudes, they begin with, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs, can I put it this way, they're the ones who experience the dominion of God. And the whole story is about the, the dominion of God and his healing and his words. He's, he's pushing back the frontiers, if one could put it this way. Uh, there's no garden left in the world until the gardener himself appears in the world. And he's all there is. There's just a gardener. But you see, he's broken the neck of his enemy and ours. And now, now it's uh, sowing time. And it's springtime. And little shoots begin to appear. And those little shoots are the guarantee, as the Scripture teaches us, of the, of the day of the great harvest. When, you remember how Isaiah had seen this, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this is the astonishing claim that Jesus is making. And it really is astonishing. I mean, there he is on this mountain. And uh, he'd begun his public ministry on a mountain, really, hadn't he? To tell them that the dominion of God had come into their lives. And now here on another mountain, he's telling these 11 men, there are only 11 of them now. They've lost, what, slightly more than 8% of their number. None of them owns a passport. As far as we know, they all belong to the same ethnicity. In all likelihood, few, if any of them, had ever been outside the borders of their own country. Some of them lived in Galilee, and therefore, because that was a trade route, they had learned Greek. But in all likelihood, they'd never been anywhere. They'd never spoken to a foreigner, really, about the truth of the gospel. And he's saying to them in this extraordinary statement, you're going to go and I'm going to be with you always because all authority has now been given to me. Because I was given over to death, because I was given over to the worst Satan could do, because I was given over to the guilt of your sin, because there took place on the cross the reality that was symbolized when that water filled with the sins of sinners was poured over me by John the Baptist, because that was fulfilled in me on the cross, and because I've broken the neck of the evil one and been vindicated in my resurrection as you are witnesses. You and there were 120 in Acts chapter 1, just 120. And probably most of them didn't have passports either. Whatever have left their native land. And he says, now that the new world order has begun, you are going to go to the ends of the earth. And those you teach to observe everything I have commanded you, are going to go to the end of the ages and I'm going to be with you. And you're going to express that authority in your lives, in your testimony, 
in your witness and in your glorious fruitfulness. And, you know, we can thank God tonight. We've got, we've got little evidences of it here in this room that Jesus really did mean what He said, that all dominion was now His. And the amazing thing that we read of Him in Scripture is that uh, while that is true, He wants to use the frail children of dust like ourselves to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Well, that's the last thing I want us to notice tonight it would be natural for us and perfectly proper for us to say, now it's in the light of that that Jesus issues the command. We can't bear that command. We can't sustain that command unless we know that Christ has this authority. You remember how Abraham Kuyper puts it? He says, you know, there isn't a, there's not a square inch on the face of the earth about which Jesus is not able to say, this is mine. Evangelism is reclaiming what belongs to Jesus. And, and we'll come on to that, but I want to end with this tonight. Um, it's because this is true that it's possible for us to live in the way Jesus calls us to live because all authority in heaven and earth is His. Now, you see the implication of that. The first implication of that is, therefore, none of the authority in heaven and earth is yours or mine over anything. You have authority ultimately over nothing. You don't have authority over your life. You don't have authority over your money. You don't have authority over your life calling. You don't have authority over your relationships. You don't have authority over your loves, your aspirations, your ambitions. You don't have authority over the providential circumstances that surround you. And you see, um, that's why non-Christians hate the gospel. But you see, that's why Christians love the gospel. Because it means if everything is his and nothing is mine, if no authority is mine and all authority is his, then I can live very contentedly in sickness and in health, in marriage or in singleness, because I know that He is in control, that He has all dominion, that He's not only gardening the earth, He's, he's gardening my life. And every situation I encounter, I mean, th this, is the, this is where the rubber meets the road in really believing that Jesus is King, that Jesus is sovereign. Nothing happens to you apart from His authority. And when that goes down deep into my mind and then deep down into my soul, it transforms every reaction, every little detail of my life because I'm able to say, Lord Jesus, 
None of this could have happened apart from your authority. And since your authority is the authority of the one who died to save me, I am sure that none of these things will ever remove me from your love, nor any of these things ultimately harm me. Indeed, I may even be able to say, because you have all authority in heaven and on earth, not only will no bird fall from heaven, no hair go unnumbered, but nothing can possibly happen to me outside of your sovereign grace. And that was a message these men really needed to hear. I mean, some doubted. What does that mean? What does that mean? Some doubted. But you see, when you, when you read on to the rest of the story, you realize that what Jesus is doing here is he's, he, he, Matthew is not only summing up his gospel, and Jesus isn't just summing up the Bible, but Jesus laying the foundation for the whole of the church's future. And this is what makes the difference that we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord because we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and all dominion is his. And I'm kind of tempted to end by saying, isn't that great? Isn't that really great? But it's only just the first part of the Great Commission. May God enable us to live in that part this week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder of the gospel. We thank you that we have a whole Bible gospel. We thank you for the endless riches of truth that we find in the gospel. We thank you for the amazing destiny for which we were created and we feel the tragedy of our loss of it every single day in our lives. But we thank you that Jesus has regained dominion. And remember how your word teaches us that although we don't yet see everything under his feet, and we know we don't, yet we see him crowned with glory and honor because he tasted death for us. And if he has fulfilled the longest standing and most difficult of your promises, that your son, the seed of the woman, would die in order to pardon our sins and regain that dominion, then we know we can be sure that with him we are always safe. So help us to feel not just the greatness of the commission that he's given to us, but the greatness of what has been given to him and how great he is in himself that will cause us day and daily to say and to sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.
It is great, and we are going to worship our great God by singing the song, The Church's One Foundation, and we'll stand to sing, and after this, the benediction. Please don't forget the bookstore.